with verse 12, but as time allots, we're going to go into the proverb of the day. It's Proverbs 11, 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. The ushers will come forth and hand you one. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6. Okay, starting with, again, Proverbs 11, verse 1. It starts off with, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. You know, in those days, they, had, they didn't have electronic scales, so they'd have a balance. And if you had an ephah or a bushel of something, some type of dry measure, you would put it on a scale with a known weight on the other side. And that's how they would load up whatever the activity or the, uh, the uh, thing is, and they would give it to you. But what would happen was, you know, those who were trying to rip people off would shave off the weight so that uh, a bushel wasn't a bushel. You'd get nine cents of a bushel. And if they sold 100 bushels during the day and rip people off, uh, they would be able to keep a pretty good amount of money. Well, God is saying that he doesn't like that. Um, you know, he despises frauds and scams, and God delights in honesty and integrity. On a historical note, I found this interesting. On the uh, website for New Jersey, uh, Division of Consumer Affairs, you can see the Office of Weights and Measures. It's the same kind of thing. It says it was created in 1911 after an epidemic of fraud, which shortchanged the state citizens. And this office was developed to ensure that all commercial weighing and measuring devices accurately measure the commodities sold to consumers. And every once in a while you see uh, some type of bust with this organization or this government arm of maybe a gas station that's giving you nine-tenths of a gallon instead of a full gallon. You know, this, they, again, they make money off of, of fraud. So this office um, checks that out. It's pretty neat. Two. It says, when pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. When pride comes, then comes shame. We also saw in the scripture that, in Proverbs, that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And it's just a matter of time. When we get full of ourselves, we make a fool of ourselves, right? When we're filled with pride, that's when we tend to make fools of ourselves. I think we can all look back and see that at some point in our life. But with the humble is wisdom. Jesus said that the pride would be brought low and the humble would be exalted, right? And the reason why um, that has to happen is because haughtiness and pride can't coexist with what God has to offer. Excuse me. We must empty ourselves of ourselves for God to fill us with his wisdom. Three, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. The integrity of the upright. Integrity is their moral compass. It guides those, these upright people. Now the corollary to that is that the perversity of the unfaithful is also a compass, but it's a compass that leads them to destruction. Verse 4. Riches do not profit in day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. In the day of wrath, we can look at that as the day of judgment. All right? Uh, a man's riches and talents won't get him anywhere. And that's going to be a shock to those who are maybe wealthy in society, maybe uh, uh, have a lot of connections. And, you know, if you have enough money, you could buy justice, you could buy good health, you can buy a lot of things with money. But see, when you get into God's world, it doesn't work like that. As a matter of fact, this kind of stuff got into the church, and Martin Luther really sparked the Reformation because of the church at the time selling indulgences. 
So if you were wealthy and you had a, a, a sin, there was a fee schedule for your sins. If you did this sin, you'd have to pay this much to the church and they would kind of give you absolution and you'd be fine. So if you were wealthy, you could sin more because you had the money to pay for those indulgences, right? But the righteousness, okay, the righteousness is in Christ. That's what delivers us from death. Verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. And we see some reiteration here. That's why I kind of bunched these together. This is really a, um, a reiteration of verse 3. Uh, the wicked falls by his own hands. Now, what's interesting with this is that um, when I read this for the first time, I thought of Haman in the book of Esther. He was a wicked man who was a prefigure of Hitler. He was a man who wanted to destroy the Jews and wipe them off the face of the earth. And he actually built a gallows to, to hang Mordecai, if you remember this, the, uh, the account. And in the end, he ended up hanging on the gallows instead of Mordecai, and the Jews were saved. Right? So it's a very, very neat book to go through. Verse 6, the righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be taken by their own lust. Now, this righteousness... How do we get righteousness? Well, the Bible says it's imputed righteousness. It's kind of an accounting term where so, sort of like when you do your taxes, uh, you get your tax return. If you do it electronically, all of a sudden you look at your statement one day and that tax money comes from the government, boom, it's in your account. So in a sense, righteousness, when we talk about righteousness, it's an accounting term. Uh, because of Christ and what he did, we're justified, we're declared righteous. And that righteousness now is put into our account. And the interesting thing is in the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament saints were justified because they believed God's promises. They believed in the promise of the Messiah. They believed in his promises. Jesus also died for the Old Testament saints. Uh, even though they didn't, could, couldn't see the fulfillment of Christ, in their day they trusted that this was going to happen. John 8 is very interesting because Jesus says that Abraham saw my day, Jesus is referring to himself, and was glad. Jesus and Abraham were separated by thousands of years. But you see, there's a spiritual connotation behind that. Um, when Abraham saw Jesus and what he did and his sacrifice on the cross, and all those people were released from hates, um, him being one of them, he was in a good place, but he was released and now could be in the presence of God eternally because of what Jesus did for him. So Abraham saw Jesus' day from another dimension and was glad. He was thrilled. And you know, Everyone's looking for purpose and success, a lot of books written upon it or about it, but the only true way to have a purpose, to have success, to have peace, inner peace, is following God. And the last two studies that we did with the Proverbs, you see great contrasts between the righteous and the wicked. You see this, this, there's only two camps in the world, the righteous and the wicked, and the righteous are imputed that righteousness through Christ. And the only way to have that purpose, that success, that inner peace is through God's way, through the cross. Okay, jump back or forward to 1 Corinthians 6. There's only a few verses here that we're going to finish out the chapter with. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, starting with verse 12. And as you're turning there, we'll see, or we saw last Sunday, that the Corinthian Christians were suing each other, taking each other to court. Uh, but there was an issue beneath the whole Christians in court uh, idea. There was a, a, underneath the veneer, there was a, a, a lack of love. There was a lack of 
uh, respect for each other. So they would air out their grievances and their dirty laundry in court, so to speak. And today we're going to see some warnings against sexual immorality and the reasons why. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And in modern speak, modern vernacular, that's where addictions, you can see, you can see addictions in there. We're free, but I'm not going to be brought under the power of anything that's going to shackle me and make me addicted because Christ freed me from that, that lifestyle. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Referring back to Genesis 2. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So on the surface, we see the Bible addresses a lot of issues. This issue today that we're going to read is a flight from sexual immorality. But we also need to understand, as is anything with the Scripture, the Bible is not a rules of do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this. That's not what it is. We need to understand the deeper ramifications of what's going on here, which is often the case. See, we can look at this and say, well, you know, God made, every, God made something good and pleasurable, and he just wants to take it away from us. He, he, why does he do that stuff to us? But that's not the case. In verse 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul addresses two cliches common back then and juxtapositions them against heavenly wisdom, sort of like a cut-and-paste action. Example today, and then we'll go to Paul's time, is God helps those who help themselves. All things are lawful for me. We heard that. But we may say, God helps those who help themselves. Now, that's often an excuse to maybe see someone in need and not give of our time, not give of our money. We want to be maybe stingy, maybe uninvolved. God helps those who help themselves. Even in the book of James, he said they were practicing that. Now, here, all things are lawful for me. This is an excuse to engage in two types of heresy back then. Number one was antinomianism which basically said that we don't have to follow anything in the law. The law has been abolished. So we're kind of free to do what we want. And that and libertinism kind of go together. I have freedom. I could do whatever I want. Don't say anything because all things are lawful for me. But Paul discredits that by adding, but all things are not profitable. All things are not edifying. All things that I do, that I could do, maybe you're not going to further the kingdom of heaven. Maybe they'll, they'll hamper it. And he says, I will not be brought under the power of any. And again, in our vernacular, that's a great term for what addictions are. Being brought under the power of anything that's not Christ. All things are lawful. In a sense, any sin that we commit, it's paid for. Really no mortal or venial sin in the sense that you could do something where you're going to lose your salvation. If you haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you're here, you're a believer in Jesus, okay, you haven't done that. That's the only unpardonable sin. Uh, so anything that we do has been paid for on the cross. Now, that doesn't mean that that's a license to sin. Well, Jesus died for my sin, so I pretty much can do whatever I want. We kind of miss the boat, or they miss the boat when they engage in that philosophy. Romans 5 and Romans chapter 6 
The Apostle Paul says when sin abounds, all right, at the time that Jesus came, you know, even the religious system was corrupt. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. The Messiah came probably at the worst possible time in human history and died for our sins. However, the Apostle Paul says, should we sin because grace abounds when sin abounds? Certainly not, he says. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in that sin? You know, holiness is a dying practice, sanctification, something that basically, and if you've been a Christian at least a few years, I'm sure you've heard this by somebody. Wow, there's something different about you. There's something different about your life. When everybody here in this job is complaining, you're happy to have a job. When things go wrong, you don't automatically throw a fit, start throwing in things and cursing at people. There's something different about you. You seem to have peace, right? Holiness. The more, we're, you know, the more we go on in the Lord, the more we have a walk with the Lord, we start to change. And it starts to show on the outside, right? One of the marks of being a believer that the world notices that there is something different about us. It kind of reminds me of if you have two candidates of a political party and it's the same party, and they're both saying the same thing, why would you choose one over the other? If we act just like the world acts, why would anyone choose to be a Christian? There's nothing different. There's nothing desirable about our behavior. So holiness, um, you know, is an important thing because you see a difference. The Apostle Paul says, I will not be brought under the power of anything. Now, before Christ, maybe the world thinks we're free to sin. We can free love, free drug use, free pride free you know success at any cost doesn't matter who i step on i am free i can do whatever i want i'm free and as the hands are raised they don't see the shackles on their wrist dragging onto the ground it's a deception we're not free because what we are is a slave to sin right we can't help but sin before the cross before we were born again freedom is opposite what the world uh, thinks it is as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, which we're going to get to, the Apostle Paul says, and there were, in the Roman Empire at one point in time, um, there were 50% of the population was in slavery. The more they conquered lands, didn't matter who you are, you were in slavery. They would sell you, and it was a pretty bad situation. But the Apostle Paul says that even a believing slave is the Lord's freedman. And he says, a believing free man, well, I'm a believer and I'm free. He says, you're the Lord's slave. So it's so cool how we look at things in the world and God looks at them often very different than the way we look at them. So we are free in Christ not to be under the bondage of any vice or life-destructing uh, practice. Another reason not to be under any uh, bondage of a vice is, that, is love. And we're going to get to stumbling the weaker brother uh, in a few chapters later on. Verse 13 and 14. Here's another cliche that the Apostle Paul attacks. Food for the stomach and stomach for foods. But Paul adds, But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And this was the philosophy. And it's amazing how man always tries to get over on God. You know, God says this is the way we should do it, and we say, and we try to figure it out because this is what I want to do, so I'm going to figure out a way to get around that, right? The stomach is naturally made to digest food. Therefore, sex for the body and the body for sex, it was made to enjoy. 
Now, this is a form of another heresy called naturalism. There was a lot of them back then, as there are today, except today they're really just recycled and put under a different name. Naturalism taught that there's no divine revelation, that all religious truth is derived from nature. What you see is what you get. That's naturalism. A few problems with this. Number one, the Bible is clear. Foods have no bearing on spirituality. Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. Because what comes out of the mouth, what we say is a reflection of their heart, of our hearts. But sexual relationships have a spiritual component that, to them that many people miss. Many people miss this. Um, it's so common in our society, it was so common in their society that it's tend, you tend to look at it as just a common thing. But the Bible is saying there's a spiritual connotation. Listen, I'm not going to take too much time into going into this. I really don't feel like putting on my Dr. Ruth Westheimer hat today. But the bottom line is this, that sexual relationships, um, there's a melding, of course, of the body, of the brain. There's chemicals that get exchanged in the brain when this happens. There's sensory ner uh, uh, nerves that receive information. And there's motor nerves that do actions, okay? The mind... There's, there's, there's a mind component to that, psychological, and there's also a spiritual component, which most people miss. It's a spiritual engagement according to this. It draws from all facets of our being. Now, Paul's argument was that the body was made for sex inside marriage. Don't forget to put that parentheses there because there's spiritual ramifications there. It's, it's more than a purpose of just mere gratification. Another heresy, another heresy of those days was the, the Gnostics who said that all matter was evil. And this kind of helps to define what the Corinthians were thinking. All matter was evil. And on a side note, uh, they even went as far as to teach that Jesus didn't even actual, he didn't have a tangible physical body because bodies were evil, because matter is evil. Okay, of course, that's not true. But Genesis tells us that God made the body and God declared the body good. Yes, we've sinned, and we've turned the capacity to live forever into a, a time limit, so to speak, an expiration date that we all have. But in the beginning, it was not so. So you could say, well, the body's corrupted, the body's evil. Not necessarily. Jesus showed us redemption of the body when he was resurrected, and he was resurrected in a glorified body, so much so that he wasn't even recognized. He was uh, he was shining, he was different. It wasn't the, the type of body that could be killed again. And in heaven, we will also have bodies, according to the scripture. We read um, uh, Revelation as we went through that study. Uh, it was a lot of neat pictures of heaven and what things are going to be like and what we're going to be able to do. All right. So the body is not evil, like the Gnostic said, or it's not so common that we can just do things and there's no ramifications for it. Since God is the architect of the body, he certainly has the right to tell us how we can use the body. Now, all of us know that whatever God says is good, Satan tries to say is not good. And whatever God does, Satan does a cheap imitation or a perversion of it. And we see that. Sexual relationships inside of marriage is good. But Satan has perverted that, leading to incest, prostitution, pornography, many alternate lifestyles, rape, promiscuity, and even a point in time where marriage deteriorates, where the communication is so bad that uh, there are no intimate relationships and there's um, 
there's communication issues and it's just a host of two people kind of now living in the same home, but they don't even have mental uh, communications or interactions anymore. Verse 15, 15 and 16. So he says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or don't you know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. This is pretty amazing because maybe we haven't thought about this or given it great thought. And I think if every Christian really meditated on this, they would be less likely to engage in something outside of the marital relationship. The body can do many things, but sexuality is a special gift, and to use it outside of the marriage is to defile the oneness that God has made uh, in, in a marriage relationship. And let me just, again, reverse a little bit to the, um, the society at the time. In Corinth, this will help us out to understand the mindset of these Corinthian Christians and why they were so behaving in such the ways that they were. In Corinth, you had your temple of Apollo, where there were multitudes of male prostitutes that would, anybody who would come in, didn't matter, male, female, it was their job to please them. Uh, the temple of Aphrodite was also in Corinth. So you had these two temples, pagan temples, and the temple of Aphrodite, they were female prostitutes. So you could certainly see how it was accepted in Corinthian society, and maybe some of these Christians, the temptation was too great for them, and they engaged in this. And I'm not trying to make excuses for them, but, you know, that, that's what was going on at the time. Once again, society had a corrupting influence uh, on the Christians who lived there at the time. Now, for our application, this is not just for prostitution. This is for any sexual immorality. Okay, the same thing applies. In Genesis 2, the husband and wife, there was a... Now, this is why marriage is so... The sanctity of marriage is so important because the man and the woman were brought together and they were to be one flesh. There was a oneness between a husband and his wife. And they strive for that oneness. But he also says that each individual believer also strives for oneness with the Lord. So you have this triad in effect. Very interesting. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with being single, okay? But he's specifically speaking about marital relationships. So you have the husband and the wife, they kind of become one. Um, my wife can finish my sentences. She'll say something, and I'll know what she's going to say. It's just, a, it's kind of weird, I guess, but in a neat way. We just were together so long that we just kind of work together. But at the same time, I try to strive for oneness with, with the Lord, and so does my wife. So you see this triad, right? It never ends. It keeps doing this. So there's a oneness there. And that's ruined, of course, with, um, with uh, going outside of the marriage. Any spouse joining themselves with a harlot or a prostitute, as the Apostle Paul says, uh, or even the spouse of another, breaks that oneness, that unity with the Lord and each other. I'll give you an example. In the case of a harlot, you have a spouse and a cheating spouse and a harlot and the Lord. There's four, and it's weird. It doesn't belong. Or in the case of a spouse with another spouse, you have a spouse and the cheating spouse with the other cheating spouse and the Lord and their spouse. That's kind of weird, too. This kind of reminds me of Sesame Street, you know, the boxes, which one of these things doesn't belong. One, two, three, anything else, boot it out. It doesn't belong there. So that's important. Now, he says that our bodies, uh, we're, we're members of Christ. And the Greek word is melos, which literally means a limb or part of the body. So our bodies are members of Christ. Now, 
you have to meditate on this because we can just blow through the scripture and look at the beautiful day that's outside and go to the shore or go to the pool or lay out in the sun or whatever we do. But we really need to meditate on God's word here because it's important. We are extensions of God's arm in the world. It's not because we make ourselves... If, we're, if you're a believer, you are an extension of God's arm. You are a tool in the master's hand. It's pretty amazing. And it's something that we really need, need to take to heart. We are members of Christ. The Bible says, and we're going to get to this, that collective believers are the body of Christ. And he is the head. He is the one who tells us what to do. But we, we do his work in this world. Isn't that amazing? Do you see? I mean, I'm sure angels have some part in it. And we read about that, that they do. But for the most part, he uses his believers to be an extension of his arm in the world. And that's something that we really need to meditate on. It's very important. It's a perspective uh, outlook too. And we can even look at this no matter what we do in our lives as Christians. How we serve. How do we serve the Lord? Is it just something that we do? Something that's expected of me? Or do I do it grudgingly? Or do we serve the Lord with joy? Because if we're not serving the Lord with joy, maybe we need to take a break for a while. Because it's not, it's not working. Uh, the other thing is being a good witness. You know, I'm honored that God has called me to be an extension of his arm or his leg or whatever he uses. And of course, we're not talking about God literally having like the Psalms talks about, cover me in the shadow of your wings. You know, we don't, God's not a, a, a bird, you know what I'm saying? But you understand the protection aspect of that understanding. So he, we're an extension of him, but he has chosen us to be an extension of him. And we should be encouraged and exhorted to live our lives like we believe that we have a purpose and that we are an extension of God's arm. Verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Any other sin that you could commit really is, doesn't affect the body as much as sexual immorality. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Apostle Paul says, flee sexual immorality. This is more harmful to the body and to your spiritual health than the other sins that you could commit. He says, do you not know that your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Did you forget this? Do we know this? The Greek word used for temple is naos, okay, in the Greek, as opposed to hieron. What does that mean? <laughs> hieron, which is not used here, is the temple, all the temple, the outer courts, the precincts, the area of the temple. Now the naas, okay, is also temple. But unless you understand the Greek, you, you don't understand there's a difference between those two words. That's the, the inner sanctum. That's the part. Remember, let me back up for a minute. If you're not familiar with the temple, the temple was a building that was built and the Ark of the Covenant was put in a very special room that only one person could enter in only one time of the year. Right? And God says, my glory, my Shekinah glory will dwell in that area. So the, the Naas was the part that held God's glory. Now, can anything hold God? No. It was something that God allowed. It's pretty impressive. 
Imagine being the children of Israel saying, wow, in that very temple over there, yeah, God is everywhere, but there is a physical manifestation of God in that part of the temple. So he's saying that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's impressive. And that deserves a wow when we really understand that. What an honor that God has bestowed upon believers. You know, do we take that for granted? And I've said this before, part of my prayer life is, listen, if I, if I lose my life today, Lord, thank you for the opportunities. Lord, thank you for the honor of going up there and carefully discerning your word and giving the applications. Lord, thank you. I lived a full life. If it ends now, I lived a full life. Because God has chosen me and allowed me to do this. So it's an, it's an encouragement and an exhortation. I don't want to give the impression that, and it shouldn't be given, that Paul was just always angry at people. Oh, those Corinthians, they drive me nuts. You know, He spent so much time writing these letters. He loved them. He didn't just say, ah, forget about it, you know. So there was a passion in the Apostle Paul, but there was also an exhortation was part of that passion. And you can be disciplining and loving at the same time. As a matter of fact, discipline is love. And if it's done right, that is love. So I think Paul was a loving person, but he was also passionate, and he also didn't sugarcoat things. So you put all of those things together, and you, you get an understanding of this guy. Now, there was also a heavy punishment in the Old Testament for defiling the temple of God. Our bodies are the temple of God. Sexual immorality is really a defilement of the temple of God. It's a sobering picture of honor and responsibility. Now, becoming born again in a big church, you get to hear a lot of things, you get to see a lot of things because of the size of the church. And you hear these things over the years of kind of being equated with the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that, and you shouldn't do this because your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I heard some of these things, and I know I've been asked quietly about these things, so I'm just going to kind of take a little sidebar and talk about it from the pulpit. Whatever someone is into, okay, you talk about a glass of wine or dinner, a tattoo or this or that, whatever it is, um, we have to look at this, not judgmental, because most of the stuff is not a spiritual issue, but with a three-pronged caution. Okay, whatever the case may be, if I'm making a decision about my own family, I have to look at this three-pronged caution. Otherwise, it's not a spiritual issue. Number one, is it an outright sin condemned in Scripture? Okay, then you can't partake of it. Now, we look at cultural issues. Okay, it doesn't mean America has the best culture. There are cultures all around the world, and we should respect each other's culture. However, if the cultural issue goes beyond or goes into an area that's condemned in scripture, then you can't say, well, it's just cultural. I'll give you an example. I just was watching something on the uh, Discovery Channel or whatever. There's a, um, in, in China, there's a group called the Mazwa. And in their villages, this is their practice, that they're like swingers. They're, there's married couples and then they switch partners. This is what they do. They've been doing this for so many years. It's cultural, but it's wrong. <laughs> it's condemned in scripture. All right? And there's other cultures that do that. So the second prong is, would it cause a new believer to stumble? According to 1 Corinthians 8, which we'll get to. In other words, would it cause them to see maybe what they perceive as a mature Christian do something that their faith is shaken? Wait a minute, they're a mature Christian, they shouldn't be doing that. And I would say, a new believer, a weak believer, or an unbeliever. Would it cause them to stumble? And third, Paul says, I will not be brought under the power of anything. 
Is it something that you have to have? Is it an addiction, right? If I was given to some addiction, some here would be stumbled and say, oh, I thought different of Pastor Joe. I thought that, you know, it was, it was the Lord that he followed and that, you know, he, he, he was removed from that when he became a Christian and became a pastor. So you have to watch that thing too. Is it something that is an addiction that a lesser believer could look at you and, and stumble? And it kind of goes with the second point. So let's, let's start with this. Tattoos, piercings, right? I'm going to have a little fun with this. Old Testament law prohibited this as the pagans did it as a sign of worshiping their demons and a purposeful disrespect mutilation of their bodies. All right? Now, it's not the same application today. If we're going to look, look down on the young people who are coming into the, to the fold with the piercings and the tattoos, if we're going to look down on them, which we shouldn't, then we need to tell our wives to remove the jewelry from their ears. You see what I'm saying? It's the same thing. So the caveat to that is, if you have 666 across your forehead and you come to the Lord, well, you might want to put a little blush on that or maybe laser it off or cover it up with something else, a crown or whatever. So it's not a spiritual issue as long as it doesn't have demonic uh, attachments to it. All right? I don't look at some, I think some tattoos, I like to watch, look at people's ink work. I don't have them, but I think they're fascinating. And I don't think that I'm more spiritual because I don't have them. So, you know, if it's not in scripture, don't, don't make a big deal about it. Um, We've heard this, wine or a beer with a meal. Now, when I became a Christian, I gave up alcohol. I just did. Uh, but I, again, I don't think this is a spiritual issue. Jesus in Cana turned water into wine. And they also added in that portion of scripture, or I believe it's the master or somebody who comes out and says, wow, you saved the good stuff for last. <laughs> That's pretty good. I don't know what he did, but bottled it or whatever. But he turned water into wine. Uh, and you can say, oh, the, I've heard this. They diluted it, and you couldn't get drunk back then. Well, if that was the case, then why does the scripture say don't get drunk so many times? Because you could get drunk. In European culture, I've talked to pastor friends who go to Europe. They drink wine and alcohol in the afternoon when they get together. They think that we're weird because we drink coffee. You see the cultural issue there. Here's the caveat. If you don't know where the line is between a drink or two and being drunk, maybe you shouldn't drink because that's a bad witness. And it goes into the first category now. You go from a cultural issue to getting drunk, which is condemned in the scripture. Or if you know somebody is struggling with alcohol, don't you know, love them enough to not do it in front of them. All right, that's the second category. Tobacco use, also cultural in many parts of the world. Okay, if you look at some of the Native American cultures, you look at some of the cultures across the seas, to, whether it's chewing tobacco or, or smoking a pipe or whatever it is, you know, it, there's cultural issues there. The Bible doesn't say you shouldn't do it. However, if it's an addiction, okay, you're being brought under the power of it, and you could cause someone else to stumble. So, again, I don't look at someone who has wine with meals or tobacco use. I don't look at myself as any more spiritual than them because it's, it's not in the Scripture. Just watch the warnings. Um, you know, even... The, under the broad umbrella of going holistic. Um, again, I've seen all the fads, you know, the vegetarian fads and the books, and they see, you know, you're more spiritual if you don't eat meat, or the juicing fad, or, um, you know, everything related to traditional medicine is bad fad. And you know what? There's some awesome Christians who eat health food and juice and all, and that's great. And I do that, but I also eat candy bars, so I'm kind of mixed the two. Um, you know, it's not a spiritual issue. 
uh, and people can't make it a spiritual issue. There was a woman I remember at the church I went to that she felt, she was a new believer, and she said, you know, I, I have to get this membership to this health food store that I won't name because I'm not a good Christian, I was told, if I don't be a part of that. So you're not a good Christian if you don't eat health food because you're not taking your body. And we said, we tried to deprogram her from that. Inoculations, you know, after much study and research, I've chosen to inoculate my child. And I stand by that decision. Some other good spiritual Christians have chosen not to, you know. Uh, and and that's, that's a personal choice. There's no, uh, there's no spiritual issue with that. Actually, if you look at Western medicine and Asian medicine, chiropractic and some of the other things, if they could all just get together and, and share ideas, probably healthcare system would be in a lot better shape than it is. But a lot of the sides are standing back and saying, hey, we're the only ones who are right. Traditional medicine did that for years. And then chiropractic broke into that. And some of them are now saying no traditional medicine. And you got your Asian medicine coming in. And listen, we should all work together on this and we'd probably be a lot more healthy. Um, what about pride? Hey, that's one of those things that we wear or do to our body that most people can't see. Pride, self-righteousness. I'm not like that person. Look at them. Look at their appearance. Gossip, right? They should also be kept outside of the temple of the Holy Spirit. And those are the types that are usually doing the ones pointing the fingers. They're the older brothers and the prodigal son looking and pointing the finger at the younger brother. Now let's take this to the other extreme. What about those that really take care of their bodies? You know, they work out in the gym, they run, they, um, you know, they're well-groomed, great appearances. Um, you know, I believe in taking care of my physique. God has blessed me uh, last, somewhere around last year or this year. I believe he's healed me from a lot of my neck and back pain. So I like to be physical. I like to work out. I like to chop wood. I like to swim. Um, does that make me better than anyone else? Because I'm taking great care of my temple. Not necessarily. I say no. Doesn't make me more spiritual. Because actually, if we take care of our bodies so much that we take time away from our family and devotions and our studies, then aren't we worshiping that naas now instead of using it to house God's awesome Holy Spirit? So now we're guilty of worshiping the temple, the structure, instead of focusing on what it's housing. And then we miss the point. We can get so caught up in this, and I've seen it, that we forget what the whole point is of being the temple of the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is we should respect our bodies. And the reason being is because God made our bodies. We shouldn't try to mutilate or destroy or, um, you know, defile what God has given us. You know, it's, our bodies are a gift. They also are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we should also not make spiritual issues out of things that aren't spiritual issues. Right? The Bible says don't go beyond what is written. And lastly, verse 20, which is probably really sums it up and maybe the most important part of this whole block. For you were bought at a price, and I would add that was a very high price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So if the previous arguments against sexual immorality weren't enough, if the previous exhortation to live our lives in light of the fact that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit wasn't enough. The Apostle Paul says we were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in both your body and your spirit. I would say with all of our beings, love God with all your mind, soul, strength, you know, everything you have, love God with your will, right? Your intellect, everything. 
In World War II in Germany, Oskar Schindler, the movie Schindler's List, was made about him. Saved the lives of 1,200 Jews, and the Jews today revere him as a righteous Gentile by putting up money for them under the guise of needing factory workers. Oskar Schindler, because of this practice, eventually went bankrupt because he gave really everything he had. I don't think he started out really well, but he started to love these people and consider them family, even the disabled ones. You know, he would say to the Gestapo, no, 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 I got them doing this. So he, did, he gave everything he had, and he went bankrupt, but he saved the lives of 1,200 Jews. This act certainly saved him, or saved them, excuse me, from the Nazi death camps. God also saved us from the death camps, but a lot worse. He saved us from hell, which is what we get as a result of living a life estranged from God. All right? If we're not born again, Jesus said, of the Spirit, we're estranged from God. And I would add that the price that God paid to buy us was also very expensive. It cost his son his life and, his, and the humiliation of bearing our sins. 1 Corinthians 5 says, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, become sin for us. Now, we all look at the movies and we say, Oh, Jesus must have suffered when they put the nail into his wrist and in his legs. And I actually did a whole dissertation on what the nerves that were hit and the pain that would have caused them. But you know, we missed the point. Yes, he did suffer physical pain, and most of us don't know what that feels like. Or I don't think, none of us do, I should say. But I think the worst part, and I'm on good theological ground, of Jesus going to the cross was, for the first time in eternity, and never again, that one period of time, a window of time that has come and gone, he bore the sins of the world on his body. He, the first time ever, that the Father and the Son, there was a break in fellowship because of the sins that Jesus bore. So the price that was paid for us to have eternal life for free, to have this freedom, was, was born at a price. And therefore, why would we dishonor our bodies? Why would we engage in this type of behavior and just flaunt it to Jesus? Because he took every awful sin that I ever committed from a child, a baby, to the day that I die on that tree. Why would I purposely commit more sins? And it's kind of weird. He kind of knew what I was going to commit, but why do more of it? Why give that to him? It was also worth this price. We were bought at a price, as possibly hundreds of millions or billions have taken hold of the gift of eternal life since the, since the creation of man. And, and I would say this, we were bought at a price. You know, in those days in the Roman times, um, you could have a, a, a mean master who treated you cruelly. And sadly to say, slavery still goes on in other parts of the world. Uh, we had it, we got rid of it because it was evil. But there are people who still practice it. And in those days in the Roman Empire, they would put you on a block. And they would, if you were a, a man and you were big and you were muscular, you could do more work and they would command a heavier price. Now, it didn't happen that often. But a master could buy a slave, take him into his home, maybe for companionship. And he would treat him as a family and he would love him. And he would really adopt him into the family and treat him as one of the family. But he still owned that slave. In that sense, God made us. He, he has the right to own us. But he, the Bible says that he, we've been adopted into his family. You know, he's set us free from the shackles of sin. And we are family to him. We're his children. But we were bought at a price, and we have to understand 
that he still owns us, and we need to live like he owns us. So in light of this, let's glorify God in our bodies and our spirits as they belong to him anyway. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your...